Gracious God, it is indeed our prayer that you would help me to speak what you want me to say. And uh, with your word open before us, help every one of us to have open eyes, open ears and open hearts to receive what you have to say. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we've just had a rather long reading from the book of Judges. The book of Judges covers a period of about 350 years in Israel's history. After Joshua had led them into Canaan, uh, and until the period when kings were appointed. And there's a structure to the book of Judges. It's a structure of sin, sorrow, and salvation. Sin, sorrow, salvation. Sin, sorrow, salvation. Sin, sorrow, salvation. Over 350 years. You see, the Israelites would ignore God and uh, fall into sin and worship idols. To get the idea of what went on in that period of time, you only need to read the last three chapters of the book. In fact, I recommend beginning with the last three chapters because you'll see what degradation of sin and immorality the people fell into over that period. Uh, That tells you that uh, the spiritual life and the moral life of Israel over these periods was as low as it can go. Although it's also good to be reminded that the book of Ruth is in this same period, which tells us that in the midst of darkness, God had some people who were faithful. So that's the book of Judges, sin, sorrow, salvation. They would sin, God would punish them by sending an enemy to harass them until they were in such a mess that they would finally call out to the Lord for help. God would raise up a leader, who is called a judge, who would defeat the enemy and restore peace, and everything would be life, light and happiness. Again, time would pass and the cycle would happen again. Same thing, different judge. Then peace and happiness. Time would pass into sin. You get the picture. That's how the book of Judges unfolds. All you need to do is preach the same sermon and change the name of the judge. Well, that's what we're looking at, one of these judges this morning. But as we look at the whole period and as we look at this man, Jephthah, there are underlying themes, not this sin, sorrow, salvation, but there's the theme of God's compassion on the Israelites, even though they so frequently in succeeding generations turned away from him. And that's encouraging, isn't it? Because we often fail also. There's also the theme of God's sovereignty, uh, in particular how he would use different people with different abilities and even disabilities uh, to bring about his purposes. The word for that is called providence, God's providence. It's what non-Christians call luck. And uh, providence uh, is defined easily for us in the uh, English Protestant Reformation confessions. And so you can go home and read chapter 5 of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith and have a very good understanding of providence. But paragraph 3 of that chapter says, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means. 
yet he is free to work without above and against them at his pleasure. But God usually works through means. He doesn't splash miracles around all over the place. He works through people, people with certain attributes and skills, and even, and this is what I hope to encourage you with this morning, people who might be seen to be rather challenged. We can see this, for example, in God's choice of Ehud and his left-handedness in chapter 3. We can see God sending rain to bog Sisera's 900 chariots so Barak could destroy them in chapter 4. And even in God's use of a non-Israelite woman named Jael who was handy with a tent peg and hammer to kill Sisera in chapter 5. But we come now to chapter 11. And surely we're amazed at God's providence in using this man Jephthah to bring about his purposes for Israel. Ehud's left-handedness was as nothing compared with the record and character of this man Jephthah. He was the most unlikely candidate uh, to be the saviour of God's people Israel. He is something of an enigma. He's recorded in Hebrews chapter 11 as a man of faith. Yet we see in him some of the pagan errors and superstitions that had been absorbed by the Israelites at that time. But the Lord, by his grace, can bring glory to his name by using anyone he wants to in his work. He could even use us with all our weaknesses and downright failures. Well, I can't open up the whole chapter this morning, but I want you to consider God's providence in using this unlikely man who has been referred to as a flawed trophy of grace. And I think when we stop and think about our own lives before we came to Christ, we might all be described as flawed trophies of grace. Trophies of grace in that God has saved us by his grace through faith in Christ alone, and, and that's wonderful. Yet, are we perfect? No, I know, I know you're not, and I know I'm not. So we are all flawed trophies of grace, and I trust that that will be an encouragement to us as we look at this man, a flawed trophy of grace. Well, it all came about like this. Once upon a time, in chapter 10, the recurring saga uh, begins again. Uh, So we read in chapter 10, verse 6, Again Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Those were two fertility gods that the Palestinians thought that if you uh, would go and have... uh, intimate relations with the temple prostitute, that this god, Baal and Ashtoreth, would somehow or other take note of this and you would get lots of lambs next season and your crops would be very prolific. It's a great theory. I guess it sucked a lot of fellas in. But they not did that. They did worse still. Not content with Baal, they also served the gods of Sidon, Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines. They really were a multi-faith society, weren't they? But this was God's people and they were dabbling everywhere. 
God was angry with them and gave them into the hands of the Ammonites who crushed them, especially the Israelites who lived on the east side of Jordan in Gilead. The Ammonites crushed them, persecuted them and harassed them for 18 years. Of course, by then, the Israelites cried out again to God. Oh, it's terrible, we're in a mess. And God challenged them quite logically, well, go to these gods you've been serving. But the Israelites knew they were beaten. They repented. And chapter 10, verse 16 says, they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. Which is wonderful, except for one remaining problem. What were they to do about the Ammonites who were oppressing them? Well, it all came to a head when the Ammonites gathered together at Gilead and the Israelites gathered at Mizpah ready for battle. But who would lead them? Well, God chose, and this is what we learn in chapter 11, God chose to use, first of all, an outcast man. An outcast man. You see, some time before these events, Gilead, the great-grandson of Joseph, had fathered a son with a prostitute. The son's name was Jephthah. Subsequently, other legitimate sons were born who drove Jephthah out, says verse 2, I presume after the death of their father when the inheritance was to be distributed. Because of hatred and rejection by his brothers, Jephthah fled northeast of Gilead to the land of Tob, where he gathered about him a gang. I think the NIV calls them adventurers. The ESV calls them worthless fellows. I think we get the picture. He gathered about him, a, he was a loser, and he gathered about him another gang of losers. And uh, they spent their time with a little bit of banditry and a bit of this and that. I suppose we could say that Jephthah, because of his the circumstances of his birth, because of his rejection by his half-brothers, would probably feel that he was a bit of a loser. But in that situation, the reality was it was not of his doing. He was more a victim. He was sinned against rather than the sinner. It was not his fault. Yet still I think he would be a man who harboured some hurt feelings because of his circumstances and his rejection. And he gathered together this little gang and they had a marvellous time. And that's sometimes true that when people have been put through hard experiences like Jephthah, they develop skills as a survivor and as a leader. And anyway, Jephthah became well known for this. And so eating humble pie, the elders of Gilead came to Jephthah to plead with him to come home and lead them in battle against the Ammonites. Now, what would you say if you were Jephthah? Well, you know, not surprising. And Jephthah said the obvious in verse 7. He said, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do, you come me why do you come to me now when you are in trouble? 
Well, as you would, sensible question. And they insisted, indeed promised, that in the event of victory they would not reject him again and he would remain their leader. Not that the Gileadites would have noticed it, but their treatment of their half-brother Jephthah was an acted parable of the way Israel treated God. Uh, you know, reject him, and then when you're in trouble, uh, appeal to him, call to help from the very one you've rejected. That's what they were doing with God. That's what they'd done with Jephthah. Yet loser or not, verse 29 says this, The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. God chose what men had rejected. And of course we're reminded of the Lord Jesus Christ who says 1 Peter 2.4 was rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him. My paternal grandmother had a little proverbial saying, I doubt it was original, she got it from somewhere, and that is there's many a brainy head beneath a shabby hat. I'm sure there are other equivalents in other languages. That is to say there are sometimes people who may have very humble circumstances but they may have gifts and skills that we might never have thought of or they might be called by God to do great things that we might never have thought of. In 1836 a hotel chambermaid in Scotland conceived a baby outside of marriage, a son. She struggled nevertheless to raise him well And he became a famous minister, an outstanding preacher, writer and leader of the Free Church of Scotland, the Reverend Alexander White. I noticed only this week in Reformer's Bookshop his biography and books by him. Why should we be surprised of the people God might choose to serve him? He is sovereign. And in this instance, in chapter 11, he chose to use an outcast man. But the second thing we see about Jephthah is that he was also a faithful man. Verses 12 to 28 tell us this. These verses reveal a man of some gifts. Jephthah began, he didn't just rush off into war, he began with a, a, a conciliatory approach by sending messengers to open negotiations uh, with the Ammonites. Winston Churchill who said George Orr is better than war war. Better to talk if we can first and see what can be done. And that's what Jephthah did. He sent out his ambassadors uh, to negotiate with the Ammonites. Notice that both the messengers and the Ammonite king both referred in verse 13 to my land. This was the problem. Who actually owned this land? The king claimed that the Israelites had taken his land back when Israel had entered Canaan from Egypt. Well, in fact, this was untrue. And Jephthah sent the messengers back to put the Ammonite Ammonite king right with the facts. Israel had not taken the land from the Ammonites, but from the Amorites, a different tribe altogether. As a matter of fact, the land had been in Israel's hands for more than 300 years, says verse 26, and it was the Ammonites who were the recent occupiers. So Jephthah posed a logical question. 
If you Ammonites thought you had a case, why did it take you so long to press it? How come it's taken you 300 years to say anything about it? I say that Jephthah was a faithful man not only because of his knowledge of salvation history, his knowledge of what God had done for his people over hundreds of years before, but also because of his trust in the Lord God. He attributed the Israelites' possession of the land as being a gift from God. Now remember, he's by his messengers talking to the heathen Ammonite king. Nevertheless, he uses words that places his trust in God. I just want you to look at verse 21, 23 and 27 to get the idea. Verse 21, Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his men into Israel's hands, and he defeated them. And Israel took over the land of the Amorites. In verse 23, Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out from before him. And then again, verse 27, uh, the I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute. Now this is a man that's talking to a heathen king and he makes no hesitation in declaring that it's God who has done these things. There is a God and he has done these things and I'm looking to him. That's what makes me realise this is a fine declaration of faith by one of God's people to a heathen king. If only the Lord would find us always so faithful in various situations. But it now has to be admitted that whilst Jephthah was a, a rejected man and a faithful man, he was also a reckless man. A reckless man. Verses 29 to 40 tell us this. You see, the usual third phase of the cycle of sin, sorrow and salvation, the third cycle is described ever so briefly in just one verse Verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. That's the story. That's what we did. He gathered the guys together, went into battle, and drove them from here to there. That's all that's described about the battle. And then the narrative launches into an 11-verse record of Jephthah's reckless, shall we say stupid, vow. Indeed, he was downright foolish. A man of zeal, yes, but in this case a man of tragic zeal. And we can only wish, wish that the events of these verses, or this part of the chapter, had never happened. Simply put, Jephthah, prior to the battle with the Ammonites, had made a vow to God. If God would give him victory over the Ammonites, he, Jephthah, would offer up a sacrifice. We read it in verses 30 and 31. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. What did he expect? 
to come out of his house when he came home. His pet dog? Well, Jephthah's vow was foolish, first of all because it was not required by God, secondly because it amounted to bargaining with God, and thirdly because it had no regard for the rights of those who would be affected by it, in this case his daughter. And this passage has troubled readers, students and commentators for thousands of years. So I don't suppose we're going to come up with a definitive solution this morning, although I shall seek to offer you one. But basically there are two schools of thought on Jephthah's vow. One is that he meant to and actually did sacrifice his daughter as a burnt offering. And the other, B, is that she was consecrated as a perpetual virgin to serve in the tabernacle of Shiloh. I'm sure we'd all like to vote for B as being the preferable alternative, but the evidence seems to stack up with A. In favour of B, Exodus 38 verse 8 says that there were women serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting, but nowhere are they required to be virgins. In fact, it was the medieval church who introduced this line of thought as flimsy support for the unbiblical idea of nuns. Going right back, right back, the ancient rabbis, the early church fathers all agreed that however unpalatable it was, a straight reading of the text leads to the conclusion that Jephthah made this vow, his daughter was the first person to rush out of the house and he did offer her as a sacrifice. Martin Luther wrote, one would like to think that he did not sacrifice her, but the text clearly says that he did. So anyone who wishes to believe that Jephthah's daughter received a special vocation in the sanctuary has to face the fact that there's not a word about it here. But why? Why did he do it? Well, we can't get inside Jephthah's head and all we've got is what's written here in chapter 11 and Hebrews 11. But no matter which way we look at it, there seems to be problems. I can only suppose, I can only suppose, I just presume that this foolish vow was some way to please the Lord. But there's right and wrong ways of pleasing the Lord. And the issue is difficult to resolve. Deuteronomy 12.31 and Deuteronomy 18.10 clearly forbid offering child sacrifices. And apart from this chapter, there is no evidence for human sacrifice in the Old Testament until the time of the kings. But he must have got the idea from somewhere. And it seems to me that whichever of the alternatives is true, that both of them, are foolish and dishonouring to God and to the daughter. We need to be aware of two extremes here. One is of thinking that Jephthah was a primitive bumpkin who didn't know anything about Israel's law. It's obvious because of the way he dealt with the Ammonite kings that he did have a grasp of salvation history and what God had done. On the other hand, we need not assume that he had a PhD in biblical ethics. Jephthah was a worshipper of Jehovah, yes, we know that. But 
as I say, the theological and moral situation in Israel at that time was the pits. Chapters 19 to 21 show to what wicked depths the Israelites had descended. Even a Levite had a concubine. With Israel's spiritual life so low, it might not be such a surprise that Jephthah should engage in child sacrifice. I mean, think of our own society these days. Moral restraint is almost gone. People engage in practices that God says are detestable and do so with government sanction. Or are all professing Christians completely pure and free from the effects of our society? Well, we know that's... No, they're not. We wish we could say yes, but the answer is no. Even real Christians may get caught up in the sins of our day and even practice and even seek to defend that which is evil in God's eyes. So perhaps we understand Jephthah only too well. He was a loser who made good. He was a faithful man whom God used, but he was a flawed man. He was not a perfect man. He was a flawed trophy of grace, just like us. And that's what I want to encourage you with by way of some application this morning. Let's consider some lessons. I think what we should see from this event is that God is sovereign. In the words of the hymn, God is working his purpose out as year succeeds to year. We have that confirmed in Ephesians 1.11. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I once saw a motor car with the registration number EPH111. I thought that was really good. How comforting then that must be to us when all around us society is in moral freefall. Just like it was in the time of the judges. So that's the first thing. I think this should be a great encouragement to us. God's in control. The world's a mess, but God's working his purposes out. Second lesson I think we should learn has to do with the importance of vows. The importance of vows. Um, it's no sin to vow. It's not wrong. It's no sin not to vow either. But vows are meant to be kept. If we go to uh, Numbers uh, chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, this is what the Lord commands, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he must not break his vow, but must do everything he said. Now it's obvious then that there are good vows and bad vows, even stupid vows. But a vow is a vow. How many men have said, Lord, if you get me out of this mess, I'll serve you as a minister or a missionary or something. And then they waste years, even life, doing what God has not called them to do. That's 
that waste is, is really just superstition. We must be fair to all concerned when we give our word about something. We mustn't involve others who have no say in the matter. There is such a thing as desiring a good work to serve the Lord, but going about it in the wrong way. And then there are good vows that we should keep. And we, and we should long that others would keep them. I'm thinking of our marriage vows and ordination vows and giving evidence in court. There are times when we make a vow and we're meant to keep them. Psalm 15 verse 4 commends a person who keeps his oath even when it hurts. So beware of ours. I think uh, I've only made four. When I was baptised, I vowed to serve the Lord forever. When I married, I vowed to keep to this woman forever. When I joined the army, I vowed to serve Queen Elizabeth, her heirs and successors and all those appointed by her. And when I was ordained to the ministry to serve God and preach his word as long as he gives me breath. Now that's enough for anybody. So let's uh, perhaps not go rashly making vows here, there and everywhere. But when we make them, let's keep them. The third lesson I think we should learn from this, and indeed the whole book of Judges, is what Daniel brought out in the children's talk this morning. The book of Judges it seems intent on stressing the imperfection of the salvation that comes through the Judges. It doesn't last. Two or three generations passed and they do it all over again. I want you to remember this book covers 350 years. So when we just go from one chapter to the next chapter, we think, oh, why didn't I realise what happened before? But that, what happened before might have been two generations ago. I mean, how well do we pay attention to what happened two generations ago in our family or our nation or, or our denomination or something like that? But it never seems to last. It's almost as if well, Israel's always looking for the one. And yes, their expectations were flawed and in fact most of them rejected the Lord Jesus when he did come. Yet full and perfect salvation can only come through Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to provide by his perfect life and perfect death the salvation that judges could only imperfectly point to. That's why we read in our New Testament reading, just this is trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he saves them. Judges were raised up by God in Israel and he saved them for a little while. Then it had to happen all over again and again and then again. But Christ Jesus came into the world to do it perfectly and to keep those whom he has saved. Whatever we make of Jephthah, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one we must look to to be counted right with God. And the final lesson I would like to draw out of this passage is that we see and I think we are encouraged by and I want you to be encouraged by this lesson that God can use weak, imperfect people. I wonder, do you 
think you had a bad start in life? Has life not been good to you? Don't be oppressed by that. Don't let it burden you. God could use Jephthah and he can use people like us. Of course, that's no excuse uh, to be satisfied with weakness or stupid error or just cringe your way through life because of a difficult circumstances in your early life. Get over it, as they say. Go to Bunnings, get some timber, build a bridge and get over it. Move on. In Christ, of course, I'm thinking. No good hiding behind something sad that happened in the past. God can use you. So start seeking to improve your abilities. Do what you can for him because it's people who do what they can for him that God picks up and uses to do more for him. Always we should aim to improve and offer our best to the Lord, yet it does our hearts good to know that the Lord can use us less than perfect as we are. Are you encouraged by that? That's God's message this morning. Let us pray. We thank you for the lessons of your word, O God. Thank you that you use and raise up really wonderful, marvellous people like Moses and Aaron, King David, Samuel, Joshua, the Apostle Paul and Peter. But we thank you that you use people like Ehud, left-handed, and Jephthah, a flawed trophy of grace. We here this morning who are Christians are trophies of grace, but we admit we too are flawed. We look to you to change us and make us and improve us and mould us that we might be of service to you. And for those who might not yet be savingly joined to you through faith in the Lord Jesus, we pray, Lord, open their hearts, enable them to see Jesus in a new way as the only one, the perfect one to save from sin, the perfect Jephthah, without the flaws, perfect in every way, the one who really does save. For his name's sake we ask it. Amen.